we just sung a song, we have come with open hearts. What does that look like? To come with an open heart before the almighty word of God and allow that to penetrate and move in our hearts. So many times we come with a half open heart. It's, I'll let you work in this area, but um, don't touch that. And our prayer is that we come with a truly an open heart. We allow the word of God to shape and mold our lives to be more like him. You may be seated. So dearly Father, we pray. May that not just be something that so easily comes off of our lips. We sang songs like, so I'm going to live every day for the beauty of the Lord. Yet so many times we live every day to make ourselves look more beautiful. Whether it's we collect worthless things so others think that we have more worthless things to them like it's some race. May we be a people that are able to have our minds and our hearts focused on that one true thing that is knowing you in all of your beauty and all of your fullness. May that be our focus. We ask these things in your name we pray, amen. Now before the kids leave, uh, we've been doing the language of blessing and we've, we have a verse of the year as well as a prayer of the year and we're going to go through our uh, prayer, a verse of the year, then the prayer and then kids you can be dismissed. So let's say this together as a, as a congregation. Psalms 1914. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And now our prayer is, dear God, Please let the prayer of this verse be true of us. May we meditate on you and your word, and may that change our hearts and our language. May every word of our mouths be pleasing to you, God. May we use our words to proclaim your splendor in the same way as the stars that you call forth and know by name. Help us speak our new language every day for your glory. Amen. Now, kids, before you go, when you get home and it's evening, because most of us, you know, now that the sun's going down before 5 o'clock, and you get home and you look outside and they see the stars, I want you to remember this verse and remember this prayer and ask yourself, was I being a blessing like those stars are? Let that meditate on you. Every time you see the stars, am I glorifying and praising God like the stars in heaven reveal the glory and the praise of God? Am I doing that as well? So kids through fourth grade, you are dismissed. While they're going, you can turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we will be today. As we've been learning this new language um, and talking about this language of blessing, one of the things that comes to my mind has been my uh, feeble attempts at trying to learn uh, new languages. When I was in, I believe it was eighth grade, um, I had the privilege of taking Spanish 1, and then I had another year of Spanish in ninth grade, but it was Spanish one again um, because of my unbelievable grasp of the knowledge of Spanish. Um, I finally ended up my uh, ninth grade year with my Spanish one grade being a C after literally taking the same co- course twice. So you can tell how well that uh, went into my mind. And I still remember on one of the last quizzes, we had to put the word notebook and take it from English to Spanish. And I put an E-L on the front of notebook and I put an O on the end of notebook, so it was notebook O, and thinking that that was somehow going to work, and it didn't work at all. And, and then I remember, it wasn't too long from there that I had learned that one of the root languages of Spanish is actually Latin, 
And so I came home and tried to tell my parents that if they would have taught me Latin, I would have understood Spanish better, but uh, that didn't seem to work either in my attempt to try to say why I struggled with Spanish. But when I was going through this and, and going over it, in order to understand Spanish, you need to gr- get a grasp of Latin. And you might go, really, is that the way it works? Well, if you ever have a chance, and I don't know why it's on ESPN, but on ESPN they do a spelling bee every so often. It's like one of the twos or threes or whatever. And they have these, or and I guess it is a sport, but um, they have a spelling bee, and you'll get one of these kids will stand up, and the guy will give them a word that I couldn't pronounce if I had to. And the kid looks at him and says, can I have the language of origin? And in me, I'm like, that one helped me one bit. But the kid understands if it's a French word, it's going to end in this, word, this, you know, this ending or so forth and so on. Because when you understand the language of origin, you can then understand the language and what's going on. And when you understand that I'm from Pennsylvania, that explains a lot as well. But <laughs> in that process, in order for us to understand a new language of blessing, we have to understand the origin of where blessing comes from. And that's why the big idea today is we have been blessed to be a blessing. First Peter is where we're going to part for most of the time. And in order to understand the context of First Peter, we first have to understand who's Peter writing to. Peter is writing to a group of Jewish believers as well as Gentiles believers, believers that are in the Asia Minor world. This is Turkey, a modern-day Turkey at this time. And he's writing to this group of uh, believers, and he's telling them some things that they are going to need to know because the overarching principle of this, um, Peter's in Rome, and he can see persecution coming. Persecution is on the horizon. There's some people that have already been persecuted, but you're getting this horizon view of stuff is coming. And so Peter's writing his, this book with the concept and the mindset of telling the people that how to persevere through persecution. Because the, we have the, roughly the, the debate about when this is written. Nero is either on the, coming in or he's on the rise of coming in during this time period. And so we know under Nero there's a great persecution that arose. And Peter is going to see that, tell these people how to persevere through persecution. So when he talks then and starts telling us how to conduct ourselves with those around us, he is not talking to a group of people that live next to Mr. Rogers who love everything they do, you know, and they whistle and mess with their sweater vests all the time. He's talking to a group of people where your neighbor may turn you into the authorities and is out to get you. He's talking about authorities that are going to come and could put you in jail or kill you. And so with that in mind, we move to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 9. I'm using the ESV, and in the ESV, it starts off with the word but. Now, but is a conjunction, conjunction there. It's those concepts where you have a therefore at the beginning, and you always ask yourself in biblical understanding, why is the therefore, what's it there for? That means there's something ahead or in front of that you need to understand. And in verse 8, uh, Peter's talking about a group of people that do not know God, and now he's going to talk about a group of people that do know God. And since he's writing to a Jewish Gentile audience here that are saved, the first thing he mentions about them, he says, you are a chosen race. And the interesting part here, he's saying that this is a race of the people of God, that are now, we see this people of God that is made up of Jewish and Gentile people. And he says to them, you are a chosen race. 
And in that concept, in our minds, when you hear the word chosen, should come into your thinking in Deuteronomy where Moses is speaking to the Israelite people and he says to them, you are a chosen race. And when he explains to them, you are a chosen people, he explains why they were chosen. And it's not because they were any better than anybody else. The Israelite people at that time, it wasn't as if they were the smartest people in the world and all these things like this. God said, I chose you because of my grace and my mercy. No different than in Ephesians when Paul says about why any of us were chosen salvation is because of the grace and the glory of God according to God's good pleasure that he chose us. And when we think about that for a moment and we allow that to sink over our hearts, we were saved not because there was something good in me. When we realized that it was not, be, I did not do God a favor by like, as we would call it, joining his kingdom. It was, I was dead in my transgressions and sin. I was alienated from the things of God and I did not want God until he came and opened my heart to see the beauty of him and I followed. It was the concept of salvation we need to understand. It is the Jesus standing before the tomb of Lazarus and saying, Lazarus, come forth. And in that come forth is a dead man lives and he comes forth into the light. Lazarus had nothing to do with his resurrection. It was all Christ. Just like why we sing songs like Amazing Grace. We don't sing songs about how wonderful I am that I chose to save myself. We sing songs, all of our songs are about Christ. And as we allow that to sink into our minds, and we, sink in, we allow it to sink, where would I be if it were not for the gospel? All of a sudden, our language is going to start to change. The next thing we see in this, you are a royal priesthood. That means you have kingly blood that is flowing through if you are a follower of Christ. You are his son and his daughter, as well as the priesthood. Because of the priesthood, there was only one person that could go before into the Holy of Holies. And now if you are in Christ, you are his son and daughter. You have access before the throne of Christ. And we allow that to sink in, that I can go boldly before the throne. And he looks at me and says, son. And I look at him and I say, father. I have that relationship. Just like no different than my son or my daughter can come up and run and give me a hug and call me dad. The rest of you guys call me Pastor Tim. There's a reason for that, all right? Because you don't have the same access to me like my children would because they're my children. When we truly understand that we are a child of God, those who are saved, We understand what does it mean, the blessings that come from that, as well as the security that comes from that, where we understand that no good thing will he withhold from me. That means that good thing may be cancer. That good thing may be fill in the blank. We don't get in our American, no good thing withhold from me, so he gives me a brand new car. That may actually be the worst thing that I need, because then I play idolatry with that car every time I turn the key and I worship instead of worshiping Christ. Then we move to the next point that Peter's going to say to these people, you are a holy nation. This is a purified, a justified nation, a nation that has been set apart. And we see here, you are a people for his own possession. This concept we find in John chapter 10, and listen as I read, John chapter 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. When Peter says here, you are a people for his own possession. And then John talked about this as well. Those of us who are saved are in, the, in Jesus's hand 
And then we have the Father's hand over here. It says, no one can snatch them out of either one of these hands because we have the sovereign, all-powerful God that we are securely saved in his hand. When we allow that to sink into our hearts and our minds about how secure we are, his own possession, how does that change the way we speak? Because the next part of that verse, it says, all of these things, it says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the first thing we saw was who we were in Christ. The second thing we see is why we are here. Why are we here? Verse 9 tells us that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his light. The NIV says praiseworthy. You may proclaim the praiseworthy things. But the the ESV does a little bit better job of translating this. Where did the, the word does means the excellencies. Um, my struggle, though, because I grew up in the 80s, when I think of excellent, I think of that whole 80 world. So I'm still struggling with like excellent and rad and all those other words that people would say during that time. And so it, this week, was a, lot of, a lot of my struggle was, so what are the excellencies of him? The excellencies of Jesus is what we're supposed to proclaim. So what are the excellencies of him? And as I was meditating on this, the first thing that came to my mind where we got to see the excellencies of Christ is in his humility. When you truly grasp the fact that God, who could speak the world into existence, that by mere thought could destroy or build, would come down and put himself into a baby, someone who can't even control their own bowel system. Someone who literally is saying, I'm going to put my hand, my life in the hands of two human beings? The humility of that. That's how Christ came, to show us humility. Because in my mind, if the Son of God was going to come, it'd be fanfare, it would be parade, it would be, you know, like the whole army in front of him, and then he comes in in a white horse, and all of that would be how, if I was deciding how God was going to come into this world, that's how I would have done it. But God in his humility said, listen, I'm going to take on the form of a child and the form of a servant. And as I was thinking about that even, it came into the, another excellencies of Christ was his servanthood where in one of the last things he was ready to do before he went to the cross, he took the manure-covered feet of his disciples and washed them. The Son of God humbling himself to that level. And yet in my own life, I struggle with this. I struggle with it because as growing up in the church, one of the things that I was never taught this. The church I went to never taught this, but I caught it by what we did. And there was a, uh, there's a group, there's a ministry outside in Philadelphia called the Kensington Outreach Center. It was in the slums of Philadelphia. And we would get in a bus, the youth group would get in a bus, we'd drive down to the slums, we'd work down there, we witnessed a couple people. I mean, I remember my brother was outside with his gloves on picking up needles off the property. Not much to my mom's chagrin when we got back and he was telling what he was doing. And we got back, we all took showers to make sure we were clean again, and we went, all right, we did our service project. And as if service was from 10 o'clock on one day to 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and we thought we were then doing our servanthood. But when we look at Jesus' life, 
It was his whole attitude. It was his life was a life of being a servant. Everything he did was through the eyes of being a servant. Even when he said, I came down not to do my own will, but the will sent me. He put himself in that level. And are we not to do the same ourselves? Because so quickly we can buy into the concept of, of service as a momentary thing. Um, one of the other areas I struggled with too, uh, one of the jobs I did at, at Faith, um, I got paid hourly to do some uh, cleaning the toilets and the locker rooms and things like that. And when I wasn't being paid hourly, it was hard for me to walk in there and I would just leave stuff. I wouldn't pick it up. I'm not on the clock anymore. And, I, and even that was a struggle in my own life where I can pick up a piece of trash. It is not below me. But in my mind, I'm like, well, I'm not getting paid to do it right now, so why should I do it? You know, or there's not, or, or you're going, you know, I'm on a service project, so while I'm on the service project, I'll serve. But when I get back, I need a break. Oh, really? Oh, good thing God took breaks. Really? I mean, we, I mean, seriously? But we think that way, don't we? Because we have not allowed the gospel to penetrate our lives in everything we do. So how do we describe the excellencies of God? We do it, as I said before, in word and also now in, as in deed. What does it mean to do things in deed? We see this in uh, chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, 12. We see, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We'll explore this passage a little bit more, but there's good deeds that we are to be doing. Obviously, Peter is saying there's good deeds here. So what are the good deeds? And I asked some of the ladies in the office as I was trying to think, were they thinking the same way I was thinking? And they, they agreed with me, which was, I don't know if that's scary or not, but we were all thinking the same way. When good deeds come through our minds, we think of either helping someone, you're being kind to someone, and then the other one that we all had was giving someone a meal. It's almost like if you don't know what to do to someone, just give them food and everything will be okay. Um, and so in that concept as well, None of us were thinking the same way in our knee-jerk reaction to, hey, someone needs to help, help, was, have I ever denied myself something in this process, or am I always giving out of my excess? And the part that, in my own life, that we battle with, it is, I don't know how many times when we say to our kids, and it then it penetrates to my own heart, hey, we're going to make a run to Goodwill or something like that. The kids go and they find all the toys they don't play with, right? And they send them. But what would it look like if we actually gave the toys that we actually do play with? What would it look like, and this is hard, and we battle this as a family, and I battle this too, what would it look like if we gave a Thanksgiving basket to someone and we, we missed the meal that we gave to somebody else? But yet most of us, we just give out of our excess and we think, oh, I did my Christian duty and we're good to go. It is difficult because most of us, and I even find in my own mind, well, if I go on this trip, we may not be able to hit that vacation. So now what do I do? It's hard. It, it pricks right at me. And then we look as we go through this here. These good deeds that we're doing, and notice it says this, that they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Good deeds is something that is proactive. Yet so many times, the Christian culture, and we fit into this so well, we like to define ourselves by things that we don't do. We don't do this, we don't do that, we don't do this, instead of actually the things we do. What does a Christian do? 
Many times we answer, well, we don't do. Instead of actually saying a Christian does. And we put it on the active, on the proactive part, instead of always being on the negative side of things. Because God has called us out of darkness into light. So let's live in the light and let's not talk about, oh, we just don't do dark things. How about you talk about the light that you do? But the problem is it's easier for us to define ourselves by what we don't do. That's easy because you don't have to answer what's the question of what to do. And the battle rages. And so the question then arises, as Peter's going to talk to these people about conducting themselves, how do we conduct ourselves? Because verse 11, Peter is going to describe this, these sojourners, these exiles. But in verse 10, I want to hit on this one point here. There's, you see a two parallel verse here in verse 10. There's a thought. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. What defines this group of people? They're a group of people that receive mercy. And it changes the way we live. And he says in verse 11, then, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against the soul, the passions that are going to drive you back into the darkness. He's going to say abstain from these. Because these passions are going to be real. These passions will diminish your testimony before others. And what are these passions? These passions can be any of the sins that are going to cause us to to lose our sight on the excellencies of Christ. How do we abstain from them? Well, there's two ways the Bible's going to give us to fight this battle, this war that's waging against the soul. The first one, uh, Jesus is going to talk about in Matthew 5 in the the, um, Sermon on the Mount. And he says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Now, many times we take this verse... And we start to think then, all right, so if I have a lustful thought, pluck out this eye. Well, I can still see with this eye. All right, so now I have to pluck that out. Well, the lustful thought's still in my head. So now where am I going? Got to rip out that part of my brain that's, you know, funk, the gray matter there. And that's not, the, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is you go to whatever measures are necessary to cut off access to that sin. That if it's the, the concept where the neighborhood I live in may cause my family to draw my family away from the things of God, guess what you do? You move. All right? You move yourself out of those situations that are causing you to have your mind and your focus not on the things of God. And then there's another way we wage war against these. First Peter chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babes long for the pure spiritual milk that you may be able to grow up to salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, your taste buds need to be out of whack and out of taste with the things of this world. But yet so many times our taste buds are lured to the things of this world. And my prayer is that as you meditate on the things of God, you become, your taste buds find the things of this world that the world says delectable or wonderful are just like garbage to you. Just like the woman at the well, when Jesus was speaking to her, and he said, I will give you water that you will never thirst again, because the water that she was craving to meet her needs was relationships with men. And you see that at the end of the passage there. And he says, you've been with five men, and the one you're with now isn't even your husband. You've been trying to fill your void in life with not me, but with relationships. And then we come to our own hearts and our own minds, we're going, what are the passions we are allowing to win? What are we feeding? What are we allowing these things to go? And some people may go, you don't understand. I have some crazy hard addictions. 
Well, I'll tell you what, it still is possible. You know why? I'll give you the earthly example, then we'll talk about the Spirit's work in your heart. Let's say I was sitting there and I was battling the addiction to alcohol. Should I take a drink? Should I not take a drink? Should I start down this road tonight or not? And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I hear my fire alarm go off and I smell smoke. Is there going to be another desire that's going to overtake my battle desire right now? The desire to live will wake me up enough to go, I got to get out of this room. I've replaced that desire battle with another desire battle. So it is possible. But what you need to find is a desire that covers and surpasses all other earthly desires. And what is the only thing that's going to surpass that is Christ and Christ alone. That's why he can say to the woman, I will give you water that you will never thirst again. That'll make battles like this on these warring things to be something that you go, yes, it's a struggle. But with God's help, it's able to be overcome. Which moves us to the fourth point. The first, fourth point is something that, it is something that is hard for us to grasp, which is found in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, which they will. Notice he says, when they do, meaning you will be accused of doing evil, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I'm going to give you a personal example of the way this happened one time. We, I was at church, and uh, we were uh, spending some time talking about the way God had, has blessed us and the way we respond then to other people. And I, would, I had to go down that, that afternoon and work down at the uh, Fontana boat launch. And a man had come in, and it was a crazy busy day. It was the days where I don't know why people go boating on those days, but it was one of those days where you're taking your life into your hands on the lake type of deal. And the waves are cr- crashing up against us. This guy in his little fishing boat, the one that you're like, one wave's just going to capsize this guy. He comes in, and I'm helping him try to secure his boat. We ha- I'm holding the ropes here. He's getting ready to go finally after all the stress of traffic and everything like that. He's on edge. It's been a long day. I'm tired. It's, you know, that sweat type of deal, and you're so close to the water, but you can't jump in type of deal, and you're standing there. I'm holding his ropes, and he can't get his motor started, and now the dock is getting backed up, and people are yelling at me. People are yelling at him. I'm holding his ropes, and the rule of the thumb is we don't let the ropes go until the boat's going. And he turns and yells at me in so many encouraging words to give me his ropes. So, all right, here we go. He's not running yet. I throw the ropes to him, and he starts floating over towards the big cobalt boats with this little fishing boat with the waves crashing. And in me, so much in me wants to go, serves you right. I told you, didn't I? But something in me at that moment... I saw he needed help, and this girl that I was working with, I quickly hop down, run through the water, run over, and I kick his boat away. He finally gets it started and leaves, and I come back, and she goes, wow, you took the high road on that. Great opportunity to share the gospel here, why I took the high road. Well, yeah, I just, and we went back to work. Unbelievable, Tim. I, I, even in my own mind, I'm like, there's an opportunity by a, doing something that God had called me to do, of being kind and loving even when someone did not deserve it, showing mercy because the mercy God had given me, I actually showed to someone else, and it was laying right there for me to speak about the truths of God. I didn't take it. And I look and I go, how many of these opportunities in my own life do I have opportunities to say, you know what? 
I could have said to this girl that was standing next to me, everything in me wanted to just go, serves you right. I'll get ready to call the police and we'll fill out a report. But I ran over and did that and it was an opportunity by a good deed to actually speak a language of blessing into her life as well as an opportunity to share that, you know what, my own personal struggles of temper during that time, God helped me overcome and I could have given a testimony to God, but I didn't. And I was quiet. They may see your good deeds and glorify God. She saw a good deed, but I did not give it the credit to the credit was due. And I squelched that in my own heart. And it bothers me, and it still bothers me to this day, because I want to go back and go, let me explain to you what happened. I don't know why I didn't do it at that time, but let me do that. And yet so many times we do this. When it comes to this idea as well, when they speak against you as evildoers, notice he's saying they will speak against you as evildoers. One of the areas in the Christian world that we see this, that people accuse you of doing evil, if you follow the, back in the 70s when the laws about abortion were being formed, one of the things that they argued at the church was, you don't care about women. You don't care about women at all. And then the church came out with uh, pregnancy um, uh, clinics and different things like that. Uh, Industry started to help people through the church, to help people go through this, why you shouldn't get an abortion, and helping women in, in these time periods through when they're pregnant. And you know what they attack that they're doing now? They stopped saying you don't care about women. You know what they say now? You don't care about women after they've had the child. You don't care about women's overall health. And you're going... It doesn't matter what we do as a church. They will accuse us of being evil. But see, here's the hard part. We have to make sure that we don't allow the outside world and their accusations against the church for us to then just be continually responding to the church because they say, well, you guys don't do this. Oh, we better start that. You guys don't do this. Oh, we better start that. We need to allow the word of God to shape and mold the teaching, not what the world accuses of as. Because he says here, when they accuse you of doing evil, meaning you always will be accused of even when you're doing good, they will say you have the wrong motives. It happens, and it happens all the time. I will never forget when I was uh, going back and forth with an individual online. He was an agnostic, and we were battling back and forth on this. And he said, you know what? You Christians, all you ever do, you do stuff, good stuff, so that way you get rewards in heaven. I just do good stuff because I just want to do good stuff. And so even the idea of us doing something for the glory that is yet to come, he was going, that's selfish. I'm like, you're totally missing the whole point here, but he was accusing me of doing something good for the wrong motives. And he was saying he was the only one who could do something good. And then we had a fun debate on, let's define good, you know, because he made a moral statement, which is a whole other topic. But And this whole process here is going on. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, because there's a passage of Scripture here that we need to break down to make sure we understand. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Talking about God's righteousness. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So what is the thing about God that's going to lead to people to Repentance. It's the kindness of God. When you look at the way God introduced himself to the Israelite people, to all the people, he starts off by saying, I am a loving God, a long-suffering God. And he speaks in these terms. And if we are to reflect the image of God, 
Do we do it in a way of going, the kindness of God is to lead people to repentance? Because there's several passages here in 1 Peter that I want to just draw our attention to. 1 Peter 3, if you go back to 1 Peter 3, verse 16. But in your hearts, regard that Christ the Lord is holy. Always be prepared to make a defense of anyone who speaks against you for the reason that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that, again, when you are slandered, meaning slander is going to come, those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ, may put them to shame. Meaning when you get slandered, your conduct is going to speak. And how does your conduct speak? You first have to be someone who understands the gospel, who understands who Christ is, and that was what will change your words. Because if we don't have an understanding of the hope that is within us, a grasp of the gospel, our words will not be the language of blessing. Our words will be selfish. Our words will be whatever works better for you. In corporate America where it's, if I can step over the guy in front of me, I don't care what happens to him. I need to position myself in a line that I get the praise for the, for the project that we completed. I don't know how many times my brother has said, when there's a whole team working on a project, it is so hard because you can watch people positioning themselves for this whole time so they get the credit when the project is completed. And my brother's there going, I know I did the legwork on this. And then we go to present this. Who's going to be the guy? And the battle rages. But the way we conduct ourselves. Now, I want to be careful because here's what happens. When we start thinking good works, we start thinking this. We start thinking in our own minds. So what do people need? And we start, and it's easy to go, well, they need food and they need clothing. And so what we do then is we put clothes on people and we feed them and we say, on your way you go. And all we've done is feed a group of people that are on the broad path that leads to destruction. We've clothed the group of people that are on the broad path leading to destruction. And we've clothed and fed people on their way to hell. But it is not until we actually give them the gospel while we're doing those things as well that we have done what the whole counsel of God has called us to do. Because it is easy it is relatively easy to take our excess and say, here you go. That's easy, relatively speaking. But to actually share the gospel, to share why I ran over and didn't let the guy's boat bang into something, that's hard. That takes a person who has truly understood the gospel so our words of our mouth are blessing to those around us. If not, we will just follow trends and fads. If not, this verse is something we just memorized for this year and we move on. But the last time I checked, the psalmist didn't say, just 2017, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable. No, it was all the time. J.I. Packer says, if we disregard the study of God, you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through this life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction, no understanding of what surrounds you. But if you study the Word of God, it gives you focus. It gives you how to speak. It gives you how to interact. It gives you the way how I live my life amongst the Gentiles and unbelievers. That they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father? And the, we wonder... Because the battle that comes in our own hearts and our own minds is also a political battle. Because a lot of times we think, there's why there's government programs for that. That's why I pay my taxes. 
We'll let them take care of it. Someone comes to you and, and they have issues and our knee-jerk reaction is, well, let the experts take care of them. You know, the experts in Christianity have the same spirit those of you who are saved have as well. We have the same Bible as well. But what is it easier for us to do? Well, let the pastor handle that. He knows how to talk to those people. Guess what I do? I pray and ask God for wisdom. Because there's a lot of times you go, I don't know what to say. Yet it is so easy for us to do this. Now, Martin Luther, when he was talking about this passage, um, used the word hostiful, which basically means house table. And he said the house table concept that Martin Luther was trying to teach his congregation was how you live around your table at home is how you should live all the time elsewhere. Do you live your life as one that is honoring and pleasing to God? Because here's what we say as Christians. We stand up and we say things like, God has changed my life. And all of a sudden, our neighbors look and go, in what way? Because you do everything I do. The only thing you do different is from, you know, roughly 9 o'clock to noon, you go to a different place than I do. I stay home, you go there. Is that it? Now, again, the legalistic side that boils up in my mind is like, then we all should all become Amish, you know, because that's easy to distinguish ourselves, all right? But the hard part is how do we live our lives that are different from the world around us? Well, the easy way that exposes is by our deeds and by our words. What comes out of our mouths? But what can come out of our mouths can only be shaped and molded by the gospel and the truth of what God's word has to say. Because the task that we face is an unfinished task. The task we face is a task that there are people out there in all of our neighborhoods. And the task that God has called us to, the task that God has called us to as, a, as an individual and as a church, we are truly a city set on a hill. Whether you like it or not, if you name the name of Christ, you are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. How are you doing with drawing and pointing others to Christ? The best analogy I've ever seen anybody say was, imagine taking a mirror and holding it like this. So when others see you, they see Christ. Are you living your life that way, or are you living your life this way? Because do I hold the mirror up so when people see me, they see Christ, or not? And that's the question that I ask myself all the time, because it is so easy. It is easy to... Live and act a certain way at certain times than it is to be consistent. And the areas we battle in those areas of how am I consistent with my speech? If we're to learn this language of blessing, I need to understand the gospel. I need to meditate on the gospel. I need to allow the gospel to mold and shape my life. Just like um, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, the holiness of God was exposed to him. And only then... After the character of God was exposed to him, did he cry out, here am I, send me. One of the guys who in in history played this out very well was a guy named John Huss. John Huss was about ready to be burned at the stake for his his life and his uh, stance on the word of God and wanting to get it out to the world around. And he knew there's going to be his followers were going to be at the day, they're all going to come out and watch him be burned at the stake. And in his little jail cell there, he kept passing his hand 
his finger over the candle. And someone had asked him, why are you doing that? And John Huss said, because I don't want the last things to come out of, to come out of my mouth to be anything but that which is honoring and glorifying to God. So I'm practicing the pain of being burned alive so I can be ready so my followers see me being faithful to the end so the words that come out of my mouth as the flames leap up are blessings. And history states that he sang hymns until he could no longer speak. Man. And then I sit there as a dad, and when my kids come in, and they unravel me in a way because they're being somewhat annoying at that moment, the words of my mouth go from blessing to, oh man. And I'm not, not being burned at the stake. I'm sitting in a comfy chair with my feet up, and my language quickly goes. Guess what I'm missing? There's an aspect of mercy that I'm not grasping yet. And if it's my own kids, how can I do that with a flock, I ask myself. And it's a prayer that the Lord has been working on my heart. Because my prayer for you guys is, I desperately desire that when each one of you stands before Almighty God, he looks at you and says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Dearly Father, the, the task that we face can be overwhelming, but if it's not through your Spirit's power, we know that it's by your Spirit that you are causing blind eyes to see. Help us to be a people that are truly in love with the gospel and your character so that the language of blessing just pours forth out of all that we do and all that we say. And may we be a people that stand together as a united body of Christ, showing the light of your truth and your gospel to those around us. In your name we pray, amen.